Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. In 1923, Scholastic founder and CEO Maurice R. Robinson deemed that artistic students should be celebrated every bit as much as their athletic peers. Robinson created the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards to recognize the talented young artists and writers from across the United States. The program gained fame through the students who won its awards many of whom went on to groundbreaking careers in art, fashion, film, and literature. They include Bernard Malamud, Ezra Jack Keats, Truman Capote, Richard Avedon, Andy Warhol, Sylvia Plath, Cy Twombly, Kay Walkingstick, Robert Redford, Stephen King, Ken Burns, Yolanda Wisher, Zach Posen, Lena Dunham, and Amanda Gorman. A century after Robinson laid out his vision, the program is still going strong. The Alliance for Young Artists and Writers, which administers the program, recently published A Thousand Familiar Faces, 100 Years of Teen Voices. The new anthology gives a rare look at life through young people's eyes, whether they're grappling with World War I, the Great Depression, the Vietnam War, or the September 11 attacks. You'll find memoirs, poems, and essays about teenage life, family, identity, grief, racism, and immigration. It's breathtaking to watch as these emerging writers find what author and editor Andrea Davis Pinckney calls, quote, refuge, liberation, community, and salvation by peeling themselves open to reveal their highest powers. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the team that compiled this extraordinary look at a century of teen voices, editor Hannah Jones and researchers Demosa Weber Bay and Henry Trinder. First, here is editor and writer Hannah Jones. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Before we get started on the anthology, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. I'm a Scholastic Awards writing alum from 2004. Congratulations. Which every year grows farther and farther in the distance behind (laughs) me. What year was it? 2004. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so a long time ago, but I remember very keenly standing on the stage at Carnegie Hall looking out into the audience. That is so special. And what did you win for? For a writing portfolio way back when. That's impressive. I know. It was very exciting. I had only received a regional and then silver medals, I think, throughout my high school career, but then I just got lucky. The luck of the who's reading and who resonates and the big kahuna. And tell our listeners how the judging works, how it takes place, which is interesting in and of itself. There's a regional level in which we have regional affiliate partners that assist with regional adjudication. So everyone who receives a key on the regional level 
does get some sort of recognition within their own state. And then the gold key winning works move on to the national level where they can receive silver medals, gold medals, and the writing portfolio at the time was the sort of big distinctive honor for seniors. And it's still, it continues to this day. Yes, it does. And we've added some genres along the way. I know we've added journalism. Journalism and I think editorial cartoon is a favorite one that I love to see. That's such a fun one. And I love mixed media as well. And in the past, I think the scripts changed. They changed from radio script to a dramatic script oh. <laughs> from the early 20s and 30s. But that's oh, getting deep into the lore. Oh, that's so interesting. This is all in addition to poetry. Yes, poetry, which is what I focus on now because I work with the National Student Poets Program, which is part of the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. And it takes five poets and we work with them over a year of poetry ambassadorship within their communities. So it's really an extension of the program in a lot of really cool ways. Okay, so now tell us about the creation of A Thousand Familiar Faces, 100 Years of Teen Voices. This was an exciting one. I really, I have to say, I wanted to be the editor so bad, but I had to keep calm and try not to want it too much in the case that I wasn't the one who was selected. But the opportunity to go through a hundred years of collective teen writers, how could I not want to do that? And to get that opportunity and to read a lot of works that in some cases had not been read except for when Henry started to scan the works. They hadn't been read in 70 years, 80 years. They'd just been waiting for someone to rediscover them. So it basically takes this archive of 100 years of the award-winning writing of teenagers throughout America, and it is a sampling. It's not a compendium. (laughs) One day, maybe. But this is just a sampling of a taste of what the rich archives of the program have to offer. Where did the title A Thousand Familiar Faces come from? It was a really wonderful and collaborative process because I felt we're collecting and sharing so many voices. We wanted to have the input of our staff. We wanted it to be reflective of the voices that you would find within. So I actually went through some of the pieces and a colleague of mine went through some of the pieces and we pulled out lines that we thought would serve as a potential title. And then all of the staff voted on our favorites so we could all have a hand in naming it. And A Thousand Familiar Faces is from a piece in the book. Let me pull it up the exact title. I want to make sure I have it. It is called Out of the Mists by Bernard Chiswer, and it's from 1928. And it's truly one of the most spectacular pieces of writing about home and home lost and home refound. It's incredible to read it because there are turns of phrase or certain grammatical choices that are very rooted in the period. But the core of it and the phrase itself, a thousand familiar faces, just so immediate and modern. And now it really bridges 100 years. It does. Well, I'm going to use that as a teaser. Our listeners have to go out and get the anthology now in order to read the poem. There are so many works in here, and sometimes you come across someone who went on to become wildly famous within the canon of American literature. Bernard Malamud is one of the writers who's included in there, and it's working in a store, and it's his teenage 
job that he did for his family while he's in school and the things he learned about it. And you really see the beginning of who he's going to be as a writer, how he's looking at the world, what he's seeing and how he's translating it and how he's processing it. There's a piece in here by Samuel Delaney, which I got so excited to see, but it's not science fiction or fantasy. It's just this story about grief, about a grave digger and the son of someone that he's burying, watching him bury the body. And it's so beautiful. And you just, you're like Samuel Delaney. And then you realize, yes, this is one of the earliest writings of Samuel R. Delaney that you can ever. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (gasps) A time capsule. Yeah. So it's very exciting. And then you find someone who's maybe not as famous, but did go on to continue writing. There's a poet included named Jerry Chadwick, who I became obsessed with. Deimosa and I had similar paths of finding certain individuals that we just had to follow through time and find out what happened to you, what happened next. And his poem was so beautiful. I thought to myself, it would be such a horrible tragedy if he did not go on to become a poet. And he did, but he changed his name. And he ended up being the Alaskan Writer Laureate for a few years. And I found an old copy, used copy of his chat book on Amazon, sent it to myself. He passed away in 2000, around 2004, actually, when I received my medal. Full circle. (laughs) But full circle. And now I get to read his poetry and learn more about him. It combines my favorite topics of history and literature. It's really a historiography project. Now, the anthology is organized by themes rather than years, which is interesting. Tell us about some of the themes that have resonated with young people, no matter what the era. It was really amazing to see how quickly the themes just made themselves known. And they could be broken down in a lot of different ways, but there are certain things that teenagers have been dealing with since the 20s. And one of the most fascinating things for me is comparing how they're writing about war and how they're processing what they've seen and what they haven't seen and what they knew and didn't know as children when war was around them versus how people are writing about it today and what we have access to and what information we have. It's the war, identity, the body, hair is always coming up, which is someone I have really long hair. So I feel that hair and its ties to who we are and how we express ourselves, grief and family and modern issues. And that seemed to make sense because they all speak to each other within those categories. It's not that you have a piece that is from the far past, because you do, but it's from the part of our past, but it's directly (laughs) speaking to today in such a fundamental and powerful way. The way that these teenagers in the 20s and 30s were dealing with displacement and being in a new country and having to grapple with the loss of the old country. And you see it again in different iterations today. So it's just the same conversation being had. And it's so important that there are people who are willing to read and listen and say, this actually is important to the dialogue and the fabric of our country. It is. It's such an important reminder to look back, especially people who are uprooted, if they're refugees or they're fleeing oppression or poverty, they can often be demonized, as we've seen. And it's all of us. All of us have fled in one way or another. I'm interested in the topic of science fiction and how the approach to that has evolved over the past century. 
I'm a big nerd and I love science fiction and I love fantasy and I love what it says about a culture and a time. What is the fear? What is the monster? Because the monster represents what's happening inside of us that we can't talk about. And so you see what the monster is through time. I loved seeing that. Some of the earlier works, it's all very steeped in lore of the old country. This is the story I brought over. This was my grandfather's tale from his youth, and he heard it from his grandfather. And it's bringing these traditions across the sea to America. Whereas then in the 50s and the 60s, science really and atomic power start to have this huge impact on the story. And the science being this looming presence that is both beautiful, but beyond magical in a way, like it can get past you. So I really love seeing that. And then the evolution of technology too, taking that to the next level. What surprised you the most about the work that you read? I think it was how vital and important and immediate and fresh the voices from the 20s and 30s and 40s felt. It's not what you're expecting. There are definitely lots of pieces where you're like, okay, this is a sonnet and this is what I would expect to see someone studying form and responding. And then there are just some pieces where you think to yourself, what? <laughs> this, is, this is one of the seminal poems of English literature that four or five people have ever read. And it's just so important to unearth these little treasures and let them have their moments. It's just... And it's these windows, too, into the past, into a narrative and a voice that isn't always uplifted and highlighted. It's young people reacting in their rawest and most immediate way to everything that's going on around them. Do you happen to have the Bernard Malamud story handy? If so, I would love for you to read an excerpt for our listeners. Absolutely. Here, where was it? It's in, I think, teenage life, because that was, it's, it's more teenage life than having, you know, a, a job, <laughs> after school job. Life, it's called, yeah, it's called Life from Behind a Counter. Let's see, let me find a good bit from it. It's just so, you know, reading it, you're like, this is someone who loves to write. And as he's listening to people talk, he's putting it down for later. He really is listening to how people speak to each other and interact with each other. Okay, I'll read a couple paragraphs. Oftentimes, in deep sincerity, a friend will say to me, I bet you see a great many queer things in people while working as a clerk in your father's store. Yes, I will consider. But, I will think, you don't know the half of it. Only recently have I begun to appreciate fully the strange sights that I have seen and the queer things that I have heard in my four years as a grocery clerk in my father's store. Only recently have I become familiar with something that I knew existed, something that I read about in books and papers. Laughable, sometimes tragic, hard, don't laugh. It is life. There is nothing new under the sun, say some people, and then they proceed to become very much bored with this world. If only they could see and hear their fellow human beings day after day, they might be able in time to enrich the world with new and beautiful ideas. Perhaps they might even be able to answer the eternal question, why? Why Wordsworth loved the flowers in the meadows? Why Hamlet in emotional anguish cried, vengeance? why Adam and Eve were driven from paradise, why Beethoven created such passionate music, why people cry, and many other whys. By observing those with whom I have come in contact, I've learned to answer a few of those whys. Uh, what year is this now? 1932. Oh my gosh. 
the Great Depression, too. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes into that. You see a lot of that, the grapplings of the aftermath of World War I and the rumblings of World War II as it's coming. You see that, and it's just very scary and very beautiful that you see people who are writing about World War I, which they only experienced as little children who didn't understand what was happening, and now they're teenagers, and there's another war coming, and they feel that you realize it's hard for teenagers today. It's very hard, but it's always hard. Yeah, it's always been hard. Oh, the human condition. Life well, from behind a counter. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today, Hannah. It's been a, such a pleasure to talk with you. I could talk about this anthology and do often to the point where people tell me, please stop. You must stop now. <laughs> I just love it so much. And I want every single one of these writers to just have their moment of being read by someone new. Absolutely. We hope this podcast will encourage listeners to pick up the book. It's called A Thousand Familiar Faces, 100 Years of Teen Voices. Now, here are Demosa Weber Bay and Henry Trinder. As an intern, Henry worked with Demosa, the Director of Information Services and Cultural Insight at Scholastic, to comb through the archives and find the best of the best in student writing from the past 100 years. Hi, Demosa. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. It's so good to be here. Tell us about the role of the Scholastic Librarian in putting together this anthology. We were very excited when the art and writing team approached us and said that they were interested in creating an anthology that would capture teen voices over the past century. And the archive has a lot of the teen writing that has won awards published in the May issue at the end of the year in a lot of the classroom magazines throughout the past 100 years. We were very excited to be able to dive into the magazines, dive into the historic collection, and just immerse ourselves in these stories. We know they exist, but this was a real opportunity to enjoy them. And we just read through everything for the 100 years, and you'll get a chance to talk to Henry, who really did a lot of the groundwork for us, but it's really what the archive is for at Scholastic. It's a representation of our history, and it's also something that we use so that it helps us to inform the new things that the company does. And so art and writing team, for them, we have their materials over the past century, and this was an opportunity for them to revisit them in a meaningful way. Demosa, as a side note, could you just describe the archives physically and its propensity to flood? <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, the Scholastic Archive is located in the sub-basement, so two floors underground of the Scholastic Headquarters, which is in New York City. And so we're on the East Coast of the United States, <laughs> right off the Atlantic Ocean. But Within the archive, we have the materials that Scholastic has published going back to 1920. And we have two large rooms down there. One is full of bound volumes, which are the classroom magazines going back to 1920 specifically, like Scholastic and Junior Scholastic and Scope and Dynamath and 
a lot of the story works. And then the other half of the space is all of the books and educational materials and things like that we have been producing through the education group, the trade group, book clubs, fairs, and all of the divisions and providing to teachers and students and parents and librarians throughout the nation. Amazing. What were some of the big surprises for you in what you discovered in the student work over the past century? I think really how current the students' feelings still are. And you know this too, working with students and the kids' press, that the concerns that adolescents in particular had in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 10s, all of that still, those feelings are reflected in the present day just as succinctly as they were expressed in the past. There are different topics they may be talking about, but something like war, which in the 40s was represented in one way, in the 50s with the Korean War a different way, in the 70s as kids are reflecting on Vietnam a different way, moving into the Persian Gulf War up to 9-11. You can see those threads of how kids are responding to one thing like that. And that's just one example. A, a poem or a short story or a memoir is just as fresh today as it was. That's great. Thank you, Demosa. All right, let me turn to Henry a bit here. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the program. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. You have a recent remarkable achievement. Sure. So I just graduated from the Pratt Institute with a master in library science. I'm in good company because Demosa graduated from the same program. This past year, I was archiving for the American the Academy of American Poets and for various galleries. And then I had the opportunity to work with Scholastic on this project back in the fall of last year. So tell us what it was like to go through the archives and find students' work from the past. It was, it was overwhelming in one regard. It was, like you said, 100 years of work. And so I had to consider how to tackle that. The work was in magazines. It was in books. Some of those books were one-off compilations of poetry. Others were hard-bound volumes from the 20s and 30s. And then there are the more recent publications that are in these nice paperback formats. And so it's about gathering all of them in one place, understanding the timeline of how they were published. And only then could I really start to sit down and read. And what surprised you the most about the experience? For me, it was really interesting to trace the popularity of different formats. In the beginning, a lot of the works were more poetic. Poetry was a more dominant form uh, as a means for expression for the teenagers and for kids in the 20s and 30s. As that went on, short stories became more popular. And then now it seems essays have become much more popular. But as Demosa was saying, the content has stayed consistent in that it's addressing these themes of there's a high school bully, there's a cheerleader I have a crush on, there is a difficulty with my parents. It's things that have stayed true the past hundred years, but the ways of expressing those feelings have changed, if that makes sense. And also grief. Having read many of the entries over the years, I feel like that's such a big topic, kids processing loss, really. That was especially present in the earlier works. It seemed like it was more common just 
a hundred years ago to lose classmates. And there were several works that addressed that head on. And those are really powerful to read through. Do you have any favorite finds or stories that stay in your mind? I loved, there's one called Unwearing a Wig that I really loved. It was one of the first works that stood out to me. And it's about a young girl who loses her hair and is, finds herself, this is an essay, being forced to wear a wig. And it's her commentary on her own body and her identity and how she perceives herself. But it addresses all of these very important issues comically and like very elegantly. And that was one of the, like I said, first pieces I read. And after reading that, I felt excited to go forward and see what else I could find. And I was never bored. I was always surprised that every day I would find new works that I had never dreamed I would find, whether that was a poem written in Taiwanese or poems addressing war and just even the more simple poems. There's one in the collection called Driving Through Canada, which is just such a simple poem, but it has always stuck with me ever since I first read it. It's so breathtaking when a teen can take a potential source of shame or or anxiety and bring it out into the forefront and make it funny and just address it head on. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was 20, I had turned 25 when I was archiving and doing the first pass for the collection. And so going through these stories, it was like a good reminder of something that feels long ago for me in a weird way, but is actually quite recent of my teenage experience. And as most was saying, it was comforting to read these stories and see myself in them. I have one final question for you and Demosa. Demosa, why don't you give your answer first? Why should we listen to young people? Each year when I have the opportunity to go to the Carnegie Hall ceremony for art and writing and see the artwork that students have presented and also listen to the words, the things that they said, it brings me to tears. And I know to expect it now. The first few times I went there, I didn't realize that this was going to be an annual experience. And then within that, it is just refreshing to go there. And it's almost a catharsis that you're going to be in the presence of a generation, a cohort of kids who are going to make a difference in the world. And you're not quite sure how and where they're going to apply their talents, but you know that room has that energy. It has the same energy of Warhol, of Zach Posen, of all of these names, Linda Dunham. And now I have new names, thanks to Henry, the new loves that I discovered that were in the archive and of course the new winners that are going to be sitting there and you just realize that it's a moment that helps you and as a person working in children's publishing it also helps to center to listen to what the children have to say and what they want to express to the world because when they grow up they're going to be the authors and the illustrators and the content creators musicians and doctors and all of those different things and it's just really important if you want to be on the front end <laughs> of <laughs> trends or where we're going in the future to listen to the art and writing students in particular to page the anthology. My father's a basketball coach and it's very similar to going to what used to be the McDonald's All-American. Now it's the Jordan brand classic. And you know that talent that's playing in that tournament right there are going to be the names that are on the back of jerseys in the future and are going to be sneakers 
that people are wearing. You just don't know who. Thank you, Demosa. And Henry, what about you? We should listen to young people because there's a misunderstanding often that their voices, especially teenage voices, are transitory and therefore impermanent, that their thoughts and feelings will only change when they grow older. And so what's the point of listening to them now? But I think that the work they create during that period is incredibly artistically valuable. And like Demos was saying, often very articulate in a way that's unique to their lived experiences and their vocabulary. And they can just, they have the capacity to speak for so many people. And so I think their voices will be eternally valuable in the same way that we can read a poem or piece from 1920 and get value out of it the same way we would of a poem in 2023. It was very satisfying to finally have a kind of compartmentalized reason to read through the magazines and just come away that much richer in knowledge about scholastic history, about teenagers, about the 20th century. What a journey. Thank you so much. My great thanks again to editor Hannah Jones and researchers Demosa Weber Bay and Henry Trinder for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards and the new anthology, A Thousand Familiar Faces, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Maxine Osa, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.